This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to those of you that are joining us for the very first time. We've got another one of those special sessions today, and I'm calling it special, but it's about to become the norm, so maybe I shouldn't call it special. I don't know. But uh, I've got guests with me today. I have Eric Shoemake, and I have Michelle Packron. Did I pronounce that last name correctly, Michelle? Yes. All right. I got it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that when I can pronounce somebody's name correctly. So the, uh, I've got them with me and we're going to do something a little different today. Just a tad. Uh, we're about to do, I, I've talked before about how we're going to do these, what I call talk and shop segments, which is done in the spirit of the old James Lipton inside the actor studio type of a type of a, a show where we, we have certain questions that I'll ask. And um, I didn't want to call it inside the UX studio because I think somebody else has a show called that. So I don't want to, I don't want to mix things up. Uh, so we, I just like talking shop. We, we just, I think it's important for UXers to share their knowledge and their experiences because we are a community. I keep saying that lately. We are a community. The more we can cross pollinate and the more we can glean from one another, the better off we'll all be. And the better we'll understand one another too, because there's a lot of infighting in UX and there's a lot of people are insecure and a lot of people are, they feel like they have imposter syndrome. So they say more on that coming up in the not too distant future. And, and they, they, they fight back instead of, Hey, we're in the same boat. We're in the same boat. Picture a Titanic. That's not sinking. Let's just help each other. I don't care what level of the boat you're on. We're all on the same boat and let's make the voyage as best as we can for everybody. That's my personal thought on it. So, and that's the sort of the spirit even behind this podcast. It's about just helping vault everybody forward. It's not about, hey, let's listen to Darren Hood. What can we do to take the the discipline forward and all the practitioners? So I'm thankful for people like Eric and Michelle that take the time to even to even show up today to to make a sacrifice. It takes a sacrifice to do this for those of you who don't know. And every time you get on the air like this and make a statement, there's always somebody that doesn't like it. So you're, so you're going to take a hit somewhere. Uh, there's nothing you can do about that. So I'm thankful for the sacrifices. I'm thankful for people who find something like this valuable. And again, this is for the UX community as a whole. So anyway, back to the little housekeeping. So we're doing a version of Talk and Shop today. And Talk and Shop usually has a set of questions. We're only going to share the first two questions. Then we're going to go off the beaten path because we want to focus on a specific Subject building on the last episode where I talked about or talk about the foibles and, and the different issues and problems taking place in UX hiring today from the perspective of the candidates. Um, Eric and Michelle have agreed to come on the show, and the three of us are going to share stories about our journeys. Yes, we're going to talk about those kind of stories 
uh, with regard to things we've seen because it is important. A lot of people want to talk about the blue sky UX approach. That's destructive in that when people do encounter something that's count uh, contrary to that, it takes them for a loop. We want to make sure you that you're balanced. How about that today? That you you it, we don't even have to talk about the good stuff because you're going to see the good stuff. We need to talk about the things that are happening because I want people to have a realistic view of what's happening in UX. Would you folks agree that, that, that yeah. that's important? We can't just, oh, blue sky, you know, lollipops, unicorns, and, and butterflies. You're in trouble. That's called toxic positivity, folks. If you don't understand the challenges, you won't be able to meet them. If you don't, under, if you don't know, I'm in Michigan. We're the land of potholes. If you don't understand where the potholes are, and feel free to laugh on it. You don't have to mute your laughter. Let's get that laughter on there. I'm from New Orleans. I'm from the land of potholes. That's our our mountains or the street, and then the potholes are our lakes. That's what we've got. (laughs) You better know where the potholes are, right? Yes. You better know where they are. My rims fall, like, break, hit the pothole before. Uh, I've seen people hit potholes. The whole axle is gone. (laughs) <laughs> and and the same thing if you hit a pothole in ux your axle is going to be gone mm. you're gonna blow a tire you're gonna damage a rim figuratively speaking i know people love the metaphors there's some metaphors for you how about darren and michelle and eric helping you so that you can save your tires and save your axles how about that today that's what this is think of this as when because some people why are you always talking about this stuff because i feel it's important I wish somebody had told me my my trajectory and my career would have been different had somebody told me these things. If somebody had given me the warning signs to look out for, if they had told me about the terrible employment situations that you can get into, if somebody had told me, okay, don't don't you better take it with a grain of salt when somebody says they're a best place to work. If somebody had told me that, I wouldn't have fallen for it way back when instead of thinking that that's great. So we're going to talk about that kind of stuff today. But let's let's get busy because we're five minutes in. Let's get busy with the introductions so that you can know who Michelle and Eric are. And then we'll, uh, uh, of course, want folks to share how they got into U.S. because folks want to know. And we'll use that as our foundation. Then we'll get into the uh, the bulk or the meat of today's episode. So ladies first. Michelle, how about starting us off? Tell us, tell the people about you, as Debbie would say. Uh, tell us who you are and why we should care. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Michelle Cochran. Um, I'm from New Orleans, but I live in Houston. And I got into this world a little over 20 years ago. Um, I started off, you know, I studied graphic design and psychology in school and became a web designer because that's what we were back then. And then I just kept following the wave as, as things happened and as books came out, I just went, hey, what's this? Elements of user experience. Ooh, read that book. <laughs> read the, the old school polar bear book on IA. Kept, mm-hmm. you know, learning. I taught all this stuff to myself because there were no right. programs like that. There weren't even like web design programs a million years ago. It was just, I learned front end development by view source, poking something until I figured it out. Yep. That has been my entire life. Um, I have formalized certain things. I, you know, I, I have gone to conferences. I went to user interface engineering conference like in 2002. And that's when I learned how to do like field studies and paper prototyping. I was like, oh, this is so much fun. You know, so I have done things like that. I did the Nielsen Norman UX week and, uh, you know, uh, took all those classes and got that certification. So I've done some things like that over the, over the years Mm -hmm. to, to kind of 
keep my skills fresh and have some kind of a certification because I know a lot of the cool kids nowadays they have the cool uh <laughs> master's degrees and UX and stuff and I'm like I don't have that so I'm getting an MBA instead because yeah I don't most of y'all don't have MBAs so at least I'll have that um I went off on a tangent. What was I trying to say? So you should listen to me. Why? Because I'm old. I'm an elder of the internet. I've been doing this a long time. Um, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Even just hearing that little story, it, it's inspiring. Even for somebody like me, I, I still, I love to hear how somebody, how somebody's journey was. Yeah. And, and I keep telling them that everybody should share their journey whether you've been in UX for five minutes or 50 years, you know, yeah. being silly, but everybody should share their journey because everybody's going to get something out of that. And I wish more people would do that. So thank you for that. Eric. Hello. Hey, uh, so I'm Eric Shoemake and, uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I've been doing this for a minute as well. Uh, I'll probably be dating myself by saying my first inspiration was the video game Pong. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> as a kid, television was a, a one way authoritative transmitting mechanism. And the idea that I could change something on the screen blew my mind in a way that I've never recovered from. And so I was immediately, I was into computers. I did Pascal summer camp, right? Oh, wow. uh, and then got into really early on WordPress development, right? But it was, you know, what my version of UX was what I called the results-based design. Because I was like, like, it's interactive. You can get people to do things. We need to map that with the business needs. And so I had my own framework, you know, uh, in, in lieu of not having UX or human factors uh, influences, right? And so that went well, except then I got really pigeonholed in the um, WordPress development. And so one thing that was a huge insight and took some courage for me was actually to say, this isn't making me happy. It's limiting where I, my growth in, in my career. And so I actually disavowed any WordPress work. And it was there was a ton of comfortable work, you know, uh, uh, 10 years ago or so. Uh, and then I specialized in UX and I, I moved into research and strategy, uh, ended up advising some of the top brands on their Amazon core strategy, um, you know, everything from Clairol, uh, P&G, all the Starbucks properties. Wow. Um, and uh, then got a little burnout on that, right? Because one, those teams are really intense. There's this constant pressure to deliver. Um, and uh, I never felt like one of the cool kids, right? So, uh, so I shifted. I took a little time off, and um, I've moved now into med tech. Uh, so I worked in the cardiology space. Uh, standing up some research operations, uh, taking a company from uh, 2.3 million to 6.4, um, and uh, then most recently I'm working with the Kidney Health Initiative with the American Society of Nephrologists um, on a really great uh, sort of public-private research project uh, to improve standard of, standards of care and innovation. So, um, in a way, I got to where I am by removing things as soon as I got the confidence to do so, um, and I'm fairly neurotic about trying to give back. I'm, I'm compulsively helpful sometimes to a fault, but people helped me out along the way, gave me great advice. And so I'm just glad to be here. Uh, and it's great to learn more about you, Michelle and Darren. I'm, I'm a huge fan and, and you're out there telling the truth every day uh, and, 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 you know, uh, and providing leadership in a, in a very chaotic, uh, uh, you know, industry vertical right now. So uh, glad to be here and um, uh, appreciate the invitation. Yes, yes. I am so excited to have the both of you. 
And I can't wait to hear how this conversation goes. For those of you that don't know, none of this is rehearsed. Everybody knows what we're going to talk about in general, but we have absolutely no idea what's going to be said. So let us dive in. That's the fun of it. It, it just, I, I love it. So let's get into it. Uh, we've got a lot of years of experience on this call. We have all seen a lot. Uh, thinking about Michelle's uh, story. I don't know if Michelle's, I know Eric has heard it because I've been on his show, but uh, I my track record sounds very similar to Michelle's. I designed my first website in 1995. Um, it wasn't called UX then. Um, when I first started trying to make sure that what I designed worked and I conducted usability testing, I didn't know it was called usability testing. I didn't know any of the buzzwords. I didn't, I didn't know it was information architecture. And I saw the polar bear book in 98 and I saw it and I grabbed it and I started reading it. And I was infatuated by all the funny little cute animals on the front of all the O'Reilly books. Every time I saw an animal in the front of the book, I bought it. You know, that's just the way it went because I was trying to be what I thought was a cool kid back then in a sense. But we just, we go down these paths and we learn and we have experiences. Everybody does. And so everybody develops a worldview. If I can borrow from some of the things we do in my educational studies, that whole worldview. Uh, and so everybody brings this thing to the table. I, my, my hope is that collectively our worldviews will help those out there as we, we've all experienced different things along this journey. We've worked at different places We've had highs, we've had lows, uh, we've had triumphs, we've had things that made us want to pull our hair out. Um, I have cried at work before, even if I had to go to the parking lot to do it. I think everybody is saying yes. So you're going to cry if you want to be <laughs> in UX. Let's stretch those tear ducts because they're going to get some work. Um, it's very rare to work in UX and not have your nerves tried which is why we say that you need thick skin. A lot of people are coming here because they want the check because they hear it's cool because they think it's fun. And sadly, a bunch of people think it's easy. And then you find out that the road is not smooth. There are potholes everywhere. You're going to have, when you try to get your first job, all kind of crazy things happen. And so we want you to be able to weather the storm. So I'm not going to start this off because you know that I'll get on the soapbox and won't come off. So I want to, I'm going to make sure that I'm deferring. Let's have Eric start us off. What's the first thing that comes to your mind with regard to some of the eye openers? What were some, let, let, let's start there with the, the, the operative word being, if we were, if I was on Pee Wee Herman, we'd have a rubber chicken fall with the word eye openers on here. What, what was one of the first big eye openers to you when it came to job seeking in the UX world? I mean, part of it is a little tricky because having started so early, I, di I didn't really have that the kind of the junior experience with the industry established, right? Um, but to me, the hiring is um, just sometimes how disconnected the whole, um, you know, process is like that, you know, let's take UX, UI, for example, right? So something that, you know, shows the complete disregard for um, an understanding of how the field works was the primary job definition, 
right? So just broadly speaking, uh, what we had was something that was an absurd indicator of, of, of a lack of applied knowledge, right? That everybody was using as a meme to show that they actually had knowledge, right? So we were upside down uh, with this kind of, this job title, right? And, and it still persists. And so it's become <laughs> this interesting filter, right? Um, I think the, the invitation for this might've been sparked by a comment that I made where I said, please consider, you know, they're like, hey, I didn't get the job, keep not getting the job. And I said, please consider removing UX UI designer yes. from your resume and, <laughs> and, and profile because that's hard filter for, and, and, and I think it, you know, it got a dozen or so uh, uh, likes, right? Which doesn't mean that it's true, but it does mean that it, it, it might be. And so for me, you know, just the, you know, that it, in and of itself, it, it wasn't an eye opener on any occasion, but the, the, the pervasiveness and persistency of it really does because it indicates that there's no, uh, you know, there's no centralized kind of, uh, you know, canon of knowledge that people are referring to, uh, that everybody's sort of making it up. And so because there's a lot of, um, you know, abstracts in qualitative research, uh, my favorite quote being Twain quoting, Mark Twain quoting uh, Disraeli, uh, um, you know, their lies, damnable lies and statistics, right? So one can make up a story about any pile of data they want. And so people can go, if they're good at telling stories generally, or if they have some good, you know, types of social skills, they can get in there and, and, and have a company believe that they're getting great insights. And really, they're just getting pure conjecture, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, to me, the fact that that uh, has yet to be addressed, um, I got in a nerd fight yesterday uh, along with the V. Uh, <laughs> Don Norman <laughs> uh, and, and some fellow named Mauro, um, who was, you know, criticizing basically overall the critique is that design education is, is woefully inadequate. Um, and, and I agree, right? Just by the chaos of the conversation, the fact that it's not understood that there is a good centralized canon of knowledge. It just baffles me. Um, and it's primarily because of confirmation bias. The closer to the money you get, the less the stakeholders want to hear what they don't want to hear. <laughs> that that makes true. sense. <laughs> yes, it so, is. <laughs> um, yeah, just the, the fact that the whole the whole industry is somewhat upside down and remains so uh, is trying to self-correct. And I think that this is a great, um, you know, uh, uh, venture into that um, into that noble task. Absolutely. Absolutely. Michelle, what comes to mind for you when it comes to eye openers? Well, pretty much what he said, I guess, from my perspective, um, you know, so three years ago, I was laid off from a job I had here. And so all of a sudden I had to like, oh, my God, I got to find a job. So I think I applied to like 46 jobs. Um, <laughs> it, it was ridiculous. And obviously I did not get interviews with everybody. Um, but for the people that I did interview with, you know, their concept of what UX is was completely different every single place you go into. Mm -hmm. uh, one place I walked into, I was interviewed by like, I don't know who these people were, like marketing people. And they asked me like, do you know what material design was? And it was like one of their five questions. I'm like, what the hell does this guy do with UX? Yeah, everyone, material design. They're like, yeah, man, I know what material design is, you know? Uh, so I knew walking into that place, these people have no idea what's what's going on um you go into other places and again they've got the ux ui um the job that i'm actually leaving tomorrow is my last day when i was initially hired the role was lead ux ui because i was taking over two separate positions they used to have a ux lead and a ui designer 
and I took both jobs. But I, but I told them, never call me UX UI. I am the UX lead. Yes. UI is a part of UX. It is not, you know, I do UI 5% of the time. I'm a UX person. Um, but there are a lot of companies where they really think UX UI is some kind of a real position. And it's like, you know, a lot of people joke about the unicorn thing and like, you know, people are impossible who can do research and design and development. You can. Yes. I can, yes. but I don't want to do them all at the same damn time. I purposely <laughs> stopped doing front-end development seven years ago because when you do it, it takes over your life because the minutia of making sure everything yes. is perfect, that it works in every browser on earth, that you've got 10,000 media queries. I used to write media queries for four pixels because I was that crazy person who would be like squishy squish with the screens and making sure everything was perfect. Your whole life becomes making it perfect and you don't have time for all the UX stuff and for the design stuff. You're just a front end developer. So yes, you can have all of these skills, but do you really want to utilize them, you know, 100% all the time? And so I moved away from that. Now I still have the ability to do front development and it gives me a language that I can use to communicate with my developers. And, and I think that's incredibly valuable. And sometimes I do jump in and I'll be like, hey, you know, I did, I did I inspected it in Chrome and I fixed your code for you and here's how to do this. But the fact that I don't have to do that is, is awesome. But be careful, anybody out there in the world who's trying to do UX jobs, you know, even if you know how to do all this stuff, do you really want to be on the hook for being you know, the super unicorn jack of all, whatever, because once they know you can do all that stuff, they really will expect it. And what always gets in the way and goes to the wayside is the UX. It's the thinking part. You yep. will be that you will become a production monkey or you like a mock-up monkey or you'll become a code monkey. So really, really make sure um, <laughs> what kind of monkey you want to be. Um, and you might want to keep some of your, your superpowers a secret until you get the job uh, so that they don't, have this idea of what they're going to have you do. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. That's great. The, uh, an eye opener for me and I'm just going to, uh, um, sort of be real quick with mine. Cause I want to, we want to hear mostly from you two today is early in my career. I almost walked away. Neither of you are going to know this. I've never said this to too many people. I almost walked away from UX in 2008. I almost walked away and I have, encourage other people who were going to walk away to stay since I decided to stay. And, and the big eye opener for me was I, I was working at a big creative agency, one of the biggest in the world. And I just, you know, I, I'm thinking, okay, everybody's got to value UX. I'm the UX guy. Don't you know all the research I did? I know other people are just starting to come to this point where they realize this and you two are laughing. Cause you remember when this hit you too, you know where I'm going. I'm sure don't they recognize, I just did all the research and don't they know that, you know, I know my stuff and don't they know? And, and I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. Why is everybody fighting against me? Why, what, what is going on? And I left the company uh, that I was at the agency for a very brief time. Uh, and I, I was ready to go back. I thought I was ready to go back and they wanted me to come back, which was great. It's great to be wanted. And I met with my former boss at a coffee shop to have a talk before he brought me back in. And he shared something with me that changed my life. He said, one thing you need to understand, uh, cause I know that you were frustrated and I know why you were frustrated. 
One thing you need to understand is that all friction is not bad. That there is such a thing as healthy friction. Those two words. I could put them on a t-shirt. I could put them on the wall because that changed my career. And I learned not to be frustrated or overwhelmed or want to throw up my hands when there's friction. And then I started going down the road of of emotional intelligence more so and said, let somebody be, Uh, let them bring the friction, let them disagree, let them do whatever. And we're going to respect them in that and then learn how to operate and let the boat keep going forward, even though there's some friction. Some friction is indeed healthy Learn to identify the difference between healthy friction and destructive friction, and then navigate accordingly. Changed my career, and here I am today. So that was that was the big eye opener for me in my career. Let's move on to the next one, and the next one I actually started typing some of these ideas down. I've got a wild card for you too, so you're not going to feel boxed in. If there's something you just want to tell everybody about. That's fine, and if we go over, as long as you guys have time, we can go over as well. Uh, the next uh, keyword, challenges. When you think about challenges from a job search perspective, as a candidate, what comes to mind? And we'll start this time with Michelle. So for me, the two main challenges I've had in my career, so one of them has to do with the fact that I'm from the South, right? I'm from New Orleans. Um, I live in Houston now and I lived in Jackson for a while. We don't have a lot of fame companies here, right? We don't have all of these cool, hot, you know, tech places. So all of the places that I don't have like known entities on my resume, I don't have Facebook on there. I don't have Google. I don't have these things that people can instantly go, ah, okay, so she's awesome, right? So that's a problem if you're trying to get a job outside of your geographical area because people just don't know where you've worked. Um, and then I, th- I think that there is a bias, especially now that everything is remote, right? When you, now that everything is remote, when you are applying for jobs, you're applying, you're competing against the whole country. And in some cases, the whole planet and anybody <laughs> who's got a fame on there, or they've got, you know, I don't know, some fancy degree, maybe they've got a, a master's in UX or they went to Stanford or something like that. Those are going to get more attention than the people who maybe have been like working their ass off for 20 plus years, but they've never worked any place cool that you know of. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be competing with that. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I went back to school. Cause I was like, I've got to have something to differentiate myself. I can't like make retroactively me have a cool job where I work someplace that you mm-hmm. know, but there's not a lot of UX people out there who have MBAs and who give a rip about the business side of things. And I do. So I figured that could help differentiate me. So that's why I'm doing that. But that was a, is always a big issue and is an issue now. And then the other issue is I'm a woman. I have been in too many jobs where I found out that I'm being paid thousands of dollars less than the people that I'm having to lead, that I'm having to fix their work. I, I decided a few years ago when I found that out again, no one is ever going to underpay my butt. And I just, <laughs> I, I, I really like started going, no, this is what you're going to pay me. Like when I was interviewing. And I was able to cross a threshold and I have been able to, like, I think, fix that. Um, awesome. But I think it's frustrating when you're a woman is sometimes you do not realize how likely it is that the kid who has half your experience 
who's a dude is making more money than you for the same job, even though you're his senior. It's incredibly frustrating. And I think women, especially, you need to be aware that you have to be willing to ask for more than what you think. And you need, and it's hard to know because depending on where you live, what a good salary is, is completely different. Obviously if we were in San Francisco, you know, what I make would be like, I could live in someone's closet, but in Houston, it's a, it's a good salary. And in New Orleans, it's a gigantic salary, right? You kind of have to know what the salaries are for a given area, but you, you need to be able to go, look, this is what someone at my skill level in this area should be expected to make. This is the range I need to be in. And, uh, and you need to be able to hold, hold to that. I know it's hard sometimes when you don't have a job and you're so scared that you're not going to be able to get a job. You're scared to push back on the salary that you get, right? You think if you go, oh, can we go more than that? I remember years ago, I was offered a job and I asked for 5,000 more and they said no. And I was like, then I don't want it. And the next day they called back and magically they had <laughs> found the $5,000. Any company that's got a job out there, if they don't have $5,000 of wiggle room, yes. they're out of business. So, <laughs> you know, you need yep. to be or willing to really ask for what you're worth because you, no one is going to just pay you what you're worth out of the goodness of their heart. Businesses are trying to be as cheap as possible and there still is a bias towards paying males more. It's just the way it is. Uh, so yeah, those are the challenges that I've, I've found. That's interesting. I'm going to make one note before we take, before we uh, throw it over to, to Eric, you made me think about how the UX industry co- co- uh, constantly publishes salary surveys or salary reports. So there is no, it shouldn't be a case where people don't understand what they're worth. And I'm seeing UX jobs today that are advertising for as little as $30,000. When starting salary for an entry level UX person, I say this all the time, starting salary for a UX person in the Midwest, entry level, in 2000 and anytime from 2009 to 2015 or so, 75,000 starting. That's part of why all those stories. Yeah, that's part of why all those stories that were out there about how this is a great field, coupled with the salary surveys, cause a lot of people to flock to UX. Yeah. I'm like, wow, they're making, I'm making 35 on customer service route. 35, yeah, I want to double my salary. Yeah, I want to go into UX. Not that they respected or desired or knew anything about the discipline. They wanted to double their paycheck. Yeah. I don't trust those things because there's there's a lot of bias. People with the bigger salaries are going to be more likely to tell you, hey, you know, they're proud. They're going to tell you what they make. People who don't make a lot of money, they're probably going to be less likely to tell you that. But I don't think that's true at all, that someone in the middle of nowhere is making 75 right out the ground. I don't believe that. Well, when they said Midwest, they were talking like Chicago, Detroit. Oh, yeah, like in uh, big cities, Midwest, yeah, Yeah. Midwest, (laughs) U.S. Yeah, not, not. You know, Hickville, Hickville, Kentucky, necessarily. Although that's the U.S. If if there's somebody in in whatever Hickville, Kentucky is, um, they can work remote and and they can make it too. But yeah, they just divided it up based on people on the West Coast actually made more, and some of these salaries were the sources is what made it reliable because it would come from like the UXPA. I can't remember a couple of the other ones. They were really viable sources where people were willing to tell you. And then I talked to a lot of people uh, on top of that. And you find that pretty much was what was yeah. what was happening. But to see a $30,000 UX job, yeah, that's crazy. you mean I can work at McDonald's and make more than a UX person? <laughs> no, we got problems. Yeah. 
But the thing is, there are so many people who are so interested in getting into UX that they're willing to take something they don't know their worth, which no matter what job you're getting, you should know your worth. They don't know their worth, but they want to get in so bad, they'll take anything. That closes the problem for the company because you're not going to be able to keep that person. It's going to be a matter of time before they discover what they're worth. And once they do it, they're gone. Now, nobody seems to be willing to count how much attrition costs. So now that you're not going to be able to keep that person or you're going to have to give them a, a raise and, and that's going to cause a bunch of uh, unsettled, unsettling feelings and so some issues there. But just made me think about that. I thought that'd be good to insert that in. All right, Eric, take it away. Biggest challenge that comes to mind. Well, yeah, and I, you know, uh, to I had a, I put a pin in a note here to comment on uh, Michelle's last point, which is, you know, also, uh, you know, men have to uh, fix it as well and take responsibility for the the uh, pay disparities. And um, as a, a gender non-binary person who generally presents as a, a cisgendered white male, uh, I have had a line of sight into all of that and it's absurd. So it, it needs to be fixed from both sides, right? Um, so interesting point there. Uh, but people do need to stand up on the hiring side as well to make sure that, you know, regardless of race, gender, you know, uh, ethnicity, nationality, everybody gets, you know, uh, uh, pay equity and anything else is un unacceptable. Uh, that's my position on that. But a job challenge for me is actually at this stage finding ethical companies, right? So, you know, there's only certain companies that I want to, you know, I, I have the... Uh, somewhat the privilege of choice, having, you know, worked hard in my career. I have a fair, you know, fairly good network. And I, I actually, you know, the last two uh, major gigs I've had, uh, people approach me. And that's a really great way to, you know, have the work come in. But um, I have to make sure they're ethical companies, right? So I, one story that cracked me up, um, <laughs> this is actually about uh, seven or eight years ago now. Uh, but I got a call for uh, to to work as a UX strategist for an AR company, and I was very excited because wow. you know uh, you know augmented reality at that point was really cutting edge, and you know so I went through a whole <laughs> oddly I went through a whole pre-screening call, and then I got to the hiring manager. It, when it was then disclosed, because I some of the answers were puzzling in the screener interview. It was an automatic rifle company, and they were saying AR because they were having trouble. <laughs> and to this day, I actually still regret how much I turned on the person interviewing. I was like, "How dare you!" And I was like, "Because I was," in, like, and I was like, "Just say you're an auto like." Because for me, that's a bit of a, you know, 180. And that was a bright line between those two. Uh, but I do feel like I was so surprised that I, I, I could have I put it uh, uh, more gently. A no thank you would have sufficed. But um, the other thing, <laughs> the other challenge is, um, you know, that, that um, once you get to, there, there's really not a lot of, of executive representation for research or for UX in general. Sometimes there will be a chief experience officer, you'll see that, you know, uh, a, a chief product officer oftentimes, you know, covers that umbrella. Rarely do you see something in my field like research 
Um, and research is absolutely key. Like, you know, um, so I, I don't know. Uh, I think those two challenges are, you know, research has to identify itself. It struggles just even, you know, and UX even um, meshing with organizations, right? Because uh, as you were saying earlier, Darren, you know, it's like, you know, you show up and you're like, I, I have all this wonderful stuff. It's called UX and I've got these insights and they're going to help everybody and it's going to be great. And everybody else is like, get off my lawn, right? Like you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're taking turf away from like everybody, right? Designers and copywriters. And they're like, who is this UX person? What even is UX? And why is everybody listening to them now? And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think a, a little bit of a, um, you know, a, a uh, an array of answers there, but, you know, I think the idea of, of ethical companies, representation and leadership, you know, and then uh, making the case that that, that matters, right? Um, that not just UX matters, but that, that research matters. Um, and that can be a little uphill. Right, right. That's funny you mentioned that. I know you, you threw in a big surprise with that, which ironically is the next topic. <laughs> what has been your biggest surprise uh, that you've encountered in any job search or anything, just, just even in, in landing a job, whatever it might be, anything related to that, that a job seeker might want to know. We're going back to Eric to start this one. Sure. Um, just, you know, I was never academically uh, trained. I, I've done, I've got a master's degree in experience design. Um, so I guess I was academically trained, but a lot of it was self-directed. Um, and, and so, um, one of the biggest surprises to me is that I don't go in with like an ideal academic methodology, right? I, I, I've learned by doing, I learned by, you know, self-taught uh, before the field was there. I invented my own little version of it. Um, and as did, you know, anybody out there that was working at the time. Um, the surprise to me was how things actually got done uh, at, at, you know, uh, enterprise level organizations, right? So uh, I, I, Surprisingly, I'm quoting Disraeli again, uh, nobody likes to see how sausage or legislation get made, right? And I think also <laughs> nobody likes to see how software gets made because some of the things that people would say, you know, uh, leadership would say things like, I, I don't really believe in research, right? Um, and I'd say, well, that's like saying you don't believe in hats, right? Uh, you know, uh, or that hats are sandwiches, right? But if we eat hats, you don't, you know, there's still hats or hats and sandwiches or sandwiches, right? So, um, you know, to me, the shocking, like sort of denial of reality sometimes, the shiny object syndrome, how all of that can kind of crystallize to some spectacularly poor decisions by groups of otherwise very intelligent people. Uh, and so businesses, a lot of times they're chasing money or they're chasing a, like a particular personality or even just they're enamored with a feature and they'll say, hey, can you validate this feature? And then you got to come back and say, no, nobody wants this feature. Um, but, uh, you know, um, uh, it, it's never received, uh, it's, it's, it's never that popular, right? So to me, the constant struggle against what businesses think is reality versus what data says is reality, that delta has, you know, just, it's, it's eye popping to me. And I, I think with non-disclosures, I, I don't know if I could go into any more specific examples uh, of, of some things that have gone sideways, but I, I've certainly seen some of the biggest companies out there um, just make some really spectacularly, you know, by anyone's standard, um, you know, just uh, misguided decisions. So to me, it's, it's that, you know, uh, 
but I guess, you know, that would also, you know, apply to hiring, I think, in that, you know, they, they'll hire people, but then they don't want to listen to them, right? So they'll hire their UX people. And there was a great a quote I shared that got like 200 likes, and I, 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 I'll I have to circle back and attribute it. It's a new uh, LinkedIn friend of mine, but, you know, saying when I got hired for UX, I didn't know so much of it would be working as a change agent that I wouldn't even be allowed to do UX, right? Yeah. Um, and then saying, look, the best way to do this is not to try to change because that sets up resistance, but, uh, you know, to really affect what you can, show value, and over time the organization may mature. And that's a really, that's, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of, of, of crying after work about work <laughs> you care about, right, to endure that and make it long enough for, you know, what will ultimately be a better product because of you, you know, come to fruition. Yeah. We are definitely change agents. I wish more. I, I tell my students that a lot. I share it as much as I can. Uh, there's nowhere for me to put it on my illustration about what UX is. Uh, I guess I could just put change agent on it. I guess I could do that. But yeah, it's important that we know that we are, we, we are change agents. I wish more people were aware of that. Uh, there's a lot of folks are not communicating it and it's not being taught, but Michelle, Biggest surprise for you? Um, so a few things. The first thing, kind of going back to what, he, what Eric was saying, um, when you're in the process of getting hired, one of the things that I did, because obviously I just went through this process, is I asked them, I was like, explain to me what UX means to your organization. How do you currently, you know, deal with UX? You know, how is it, how is it respected? You need to know yes, whether or not, and I think yes, you, you yes. need to find this out because if you have leadership that sets a tone that says UX leads development, not meaning we're in charge of development, but we are creating the solutions that the developers will bring to fruition. If that is not understood, when you walk in the door, you've, you, you just got a battle ahead. At yes. the job I just left, my <laughs> boss made it very clear. I come up with the solutions. And then I also took over as the product owner. So it made it even greater because I got to write all the user stories. I wrote all the specs. So the developers were building what I designed and what I spec'd out. And you know, when they were doing demos, they were demoing them to me, right? And I, so, but it was understood. So I didn't have, I never had to deal with developers being like, what do I have to do what you say? I never had to deal with that <laughs> attitude. And then the job I had before that, the, the product owners and the UX, we reported up to the same director and she made it very clear to our product owners, UX and UI are two sides of the same coin. You know, the PO doesn't tell UX what to do. You know, UX does what they need to do. We design the solutions and then you write the stories and work with the team to get it done, right? It's so important that you make sure you go into an environment where that is baked in, where you don't have to go in and be like, please guys, listen to me. No, no, no. Find that out before you get in there, what that's gonna be like, and that it's already understood in the team what the role of UX is. If UX is treated as a consultant or like, hey, we're gonna put a button somewhere, let's go grab the UX person and ask them what they think. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> right? But you need to know that upfront, you've gotta know how to interview and ask these questions and really find out how UX is thought of and how it is going to be expected to behave and what kind of authority the position is going to have when you walk in the door. Yes, 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 yeah. I can't say yes enough times. That's that's fantastic. I'm going to throw one little tidbit on there. Just a biggest surprise for me, another quick story. I interviewed at a company, big company in the world, very successful, 
And I have a I have my fault. I have been starstruck by brand or brand struck. How about I call it that? In the past, a certain company wants you to work for them or you start talking to a particular company and then you just become, you know, eyes are glazed because of who they are. And I won't say who the company was, but I'm thinking this company is great. The job description was written correctly. What a what a novel idea because uh, that rarely happens. And I go in the company. I take the job. I go to the company. I'm thinking this is great. I'm going to have a ball here. I get to do UX. I'm fine. I don't have to be a senior. I don't have to be a manager. I don't have to do any of this stuff. I'm happy. I go in and I find out somebody said, I, I had some really weird interactions with a couple of people, like volatile interactions. And I told somebody and they said, yeah, we know that person is like that. Um, that's why we didn't let them participate in the interview process. Cause we didn't want to scare you away. Well, they do something about it. <laughs> Why would any company know that they have a crap employee who treats people like garbage and allow them to continue to do that? Try to. There were two at this company, big company. You would be shocked if I told you who it was. Big company that during the interview process, and, and a lot of companies, folks out there, are disingenuous during the interview process. So you, we have to ask the questions that bring those things to the surface because they're not going to, everybody's not going to volunteer crazy things. <laughs> I, mean, I flat out ask people sometimes here, here's a tough question. And I always save it for the last question. When I do ask it, give me a reason why I would not want to work for you. Yeah. And I had somebody say, but Darren, I can't ask anybody that. Yeah. Hey, why? No, you, you know why you can't ask anybody that? Because you're telling yourself you can't, you can, they're interviewing you and you should be interviewing them to Michelle's point. And, and when we don't take the time to interview, cause we want the job so bad, you're already compromising when you decide not to interview someone to find out, are you really a fit? They're trying to find out if you're a fit. You should be trying to find out if they're a fit. And if I had known that they were hiding these Tasmanian devil employees, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would, I would have had to, uh, as great as I thought they were, and the biggest name companies I've ever worked for were all terrible. Mm. All and and I and I've been at, I've been fortunate to be at the top of the food chain for pretty much all of my career. There, there, it's very seldom I'm worked for somebody who's not at. They're either Fortune 50, 100, 500, or they're number one in their respective uh, uh, group. They're a leader in their in their arena. And and for some of the things that I've seen, it just it's jaw droppingly crazy. So yeah. Two people, oh, we didn't want you to know about them because we knew that they are this, that, and the other. And I'm going, wow, really? So how do you think I'm going to respond now? Now that I know. Yeah. You, you think I'm just, well, I got a check and I'm here. I might as well stick around. That's what most people do. And you folks do have time for us to extend, right? Because we're at time. Are you? Oh, yeah. Everybody, okay, oh, we're good. good. It, it, it begs the question, what else are they hiding, right? First of all, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like the same, like, make sure the AR company <laughs> is, is what most people think of an AR. Uh, yeah. And I find, I found out what else they were hiding. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. so, yeah, that's wild. Here's here's the, um, uh, the part that I mentioned. This is the wild card moment. Any topic at all. Anything about job search that comes to mind, something you've experienced, something that's just a hot 
topic on your mind, this is the wild card moment. So we're going back to actually, no, Michelle, you start this one. Um, um, so what I'll say is I know that there's a lot like, like, like a Debbie Slack channel. There's a lot of people who are, are, are trying to get their first job or trying to get their second job and the troubles they're going through. Um, it doesn't get that much easier. The more experience you have, Thank you. it's, you know, <laughs> it, and you, you would think it, it, it is and it would, but it, it really doesn't. And it's, you know, I was applying for different jobs, having interviews, thinking this, things were going to be great. And then you don't get the job. It, it, it kicks the wind out of you the same as it does, you know, 20 years ago when you were younger doing it. Um, sometimes the magic to how you get a job is who you know or like the job yep. I'm getting right now. The recruiter found me on LinkedIn. And the company didn't even advertise the job. They just wow. let the recruiter find the person. The and sometimes that happens too. Yeah. Yes. So that's why it's really important that you have your, your website up to date and, and good to go. And your LinkedIn yes. is as detailed as possible because um, it's always better when a job comes to you instead of you like, come, you know, am I good enough for you? Um, it's always so much better when, when they find you and want you and it makes you feel so much better um, because it you know I went through so many interviews I've been trying for about the past eight months to try to get to that next level in my career and I've been applying to these jobs and again uh, competing with the entire country um, and it's just you know most of the time you're ghosted and you're gonna you're gonna get that um, god how many jobs just so many like most of those jobs I applied to a few years ago when I was laid off 46 jobs majority of them ghosted me you don't even get told you suck you know sometimes I wish someone would tell me I suck so I'd know what to go fix you know um definitely you know sometimes you need that kind of feedback and when you never get that feedback you just don't know what what's wrong what do, you know that's why back then I thought oh I need to go finish my degree so I went back to school to finish my first degree I was missing a bunch of uh liberal arts classes so I went back to school and did all the math and science not science the the boring stuff that I hated. Um, so I thought maybe now the robots won't throw my resume in the garbage, right? Because they see if you have a degree or not. So I've got the degree now, but it's still not any easier. Cause I, like I said before, I don't have the fangs, right? I don't have the fancy titles cause I've never worked in places where, I, where there were like 50 UX people and things like that. Um, so depending on where you live and your trajectory in life and the places you've worked on, you might have things working against you that there's really nothing you can do to fix. You just have to try to show your value and what you have. And sometimes you just have to wait. Sometimes it takes months and then it, all it takes is one person who you are exactly what they needed and then they find you and then it, it works out. But yeah, I'd like to say it gets easier. It, obviously there's, there's these awesome people who've had their whole career working at fancy places and they could just be like, Hey, hire me. And they get hired. God bless them. Um, that's not me. <laughs> you know? um, but hopefully the people who have hired me are happy. They did the job I'm leaving right now. You know, it made me feel awesome. Yeah. You know, I had so many people tell me that they're going to miss me and that, you know, they, they really loved working with me and all that. That makes you feel awesome. Yes. Um, yes. When you can leave a job and have people, um, be happy for you and, and really like we really loved working with you um, so yeah just just keep trying and and I like to give advice on how to make it easier but I would say website and really good LinkedIn and try to join a community uh, like like Debbie's community like your community get to know other 
UX people in the yeah. industry yeah. Uh, so that you can kind of become a known entity, something like that, those things might help. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely agree. The, the you know, it, it's the connections, right? And so the, the, the pain never goes away, especially of a, of a, you know, empty rejection. It's just less of a surprise, right? But it somehow gets heavier over time. So, yeah, I think what I've done and maybe out of necessity is I've limited that approach, right? Because uh, I only have so much emotional capital uh, in looking for gigs. And so um, I've tried a little bit of branding, right? And, and it takes, uh, you know, it takes a little bit of fortitude to make the commitment, but the idea of taking a position, right? So, um, you know, there's probably had, like, I'm a known personality. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, very active on LinkedIn in these conversations where I take a side in a polemic, right? As is Darren. And that's how I, that's how he's differentiated. That's how I know he's somebody I can trust. That's how I, I that's how we connected, right? Uh, by seeing him making, you know, courageous and accurate public statements, that, that, that took a strong position that was against the tide. And so I recommend that people do that, that they really be themselves and actually kind of lean into that, right? Because then you'll, you'll attract folks that will be good coworkers that will be working with, you know, uh, similarly aligned values uh, and ethics and, and, and you won't have to storm the gate, right? So if there's a thousand people storming the gate, find an angle, right? And that angle could be a connection. Um, even if it's a friend of a friend where you see somebody's hiring, then you go to the hiring manager before you get the resume there at all. And that way you spend your time connecting with folks, asking for advice directly one-on-one, -on -one, rather than just, you know, um, um, going where the odds, no matter what, even, even the most talented folks um, often get screened out of these uh, processes that are, that are um, grossly inefficient, right? And then also having sympathy for people who are looking at stacks and stacks, as I have of, of you know, resumes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's where differentiation stands out as well. Who is this person? They've taken a stand. And so not only, and, and whether that's, a, a, you know, a, how do we say an ethical standard, whether that's just specializing. Specialize in something, cut half out, because generalists, you never know if they can solve your problem when you're hiring, and they don't stand out from somebody who, let's say I'm hiring in med tech, you know, I, I see somebody that's got med tech experience or they worked on a project that's in med tech, they solved the solution in the space, immediately going to the top of the pile. So find something that you have affinity for uh, a subject or if you're transitioning into UX, um, look at the past history. Don't disavow it, right? So if, you, if you have a military background, you could be a great field tester for, uh, you know, aerospace, right? Uh, so you don't have to kind of, you know, disavow. You actually specialize. You take your own unique story. You apply that. You, you, you know, make that part of your sort of brand. Uh, and then you get out there and you connect with people as much as you can. And the work will start to come in. And, you know, you can then still go through the hiring process, but then you've got somebody who knows you and they're the person that wants to hire you and they shepherd you through that system. I've talked to people at companies, Salesforce, people, managers there are like, it's, I'm going to get in trouble now. It's, it's, you know, they say that it's hard to hire because they're not, they're not hiring fast enough and they've got these processes. And I'm sure that the processes are there from, you know, legacy, you know, evolution and that they have their own advantages, which can't just be discarded. But if people are having trouble in a very competitive market, um, you know, uh, the, then that's factor as well. That's amazing stuff. Yeah. Great commentary 
from everybody. We talked about eye openers. We talked about challenges. We talked about biggest surprises. And Michelle and Eric both provided some some wild card moments, which really actually brought in what what was going to be the fifth topic because you folks both gave some 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 tips, some advice to those out there seeking jobs. So I, I'll close it off with one comment: is that I, I really need to encourage people, especially those of you seeking your first UX gig. Uh, if I was a freelance web designer during the evenings when I had a day job doing something else, if I had not been doing that, I wouldn't have gotten my first UX job. It was, it's all about value. Uh, people are going to match what they're trying. If they're looking for a senior, they're doing that for a reason. And there are meetings that have preceded that job posting, which is why they're looking for a senior. So there's a business need that precedes whatever. If it's a mid-level person, if it's an entry-level person, there is a meeting that preceded that. So they want to match whatever that is. So you want to respect that from each company. Don't just say, oh, I can't find anything. It's a rough path. It's It's an uphill climb. So strap on, put your seatbelt on, and get to applying. Michelle mentioned 40 some odd jobs. I, and yes, as she said this, it doesn't change, folks. When you're mid-level, when you're senior, it's going to be exactly the same. And it's worse today because you have so many people that don't understand what UX is that are doing the hiring, and they're hiring all kinds of people for roles that they just they don't qualify for, but nobody understands. So I know somebody who got a principal job, a principal UX job with zero UX experience. I saw this in the last week. That person was like, they did everything but UX. I looked at the person, when I saw everybody celebrating, I looked at the person's profile. How did that person get a principal job? Because somebody doesn't care or they feel they've equated what that person is doing with what a UX person is doing. And and it's not, it's not accurate. So that confuses people. It's going to confuse the people in-house. Uh, there are a lot of people out in the UX world who believe in a fake it till you make it mindset. A lot of those people are faking it till they make it. They won't tell you. They've been told in the interview, if they ask if you know something, say yes, even if you don't. You're willing to, somebody, do not ever make anything unethical a part of your foundation in a relationship with a company. You've got to be, if you don't know, no, you know, I don't know anything about that, but you know what? I'm a fast learner. Mm-hmm. Now that's yeah. how you, and if it's true, if you if you're terrible at learning, then then don't tell me you're a fast learner. But but if you can present yourself, you have to keep selling people, letting people know, yes, I will bring value. Everything you say and everything you do as a candidate must say, yes, I will bring value. And as long as you can bring value and can prove that you can bring value for whatever it is that you're trying to match up with. You're going to have a better route, but don't be discouraged or dissuaded by the no's and the ghosting. It's part of the job search process. It's part of life. So is it disappointing? Yes. Do you really need to get a job? Yes. We all understand that, but it's still going to shake out the way it's going to shake out. That's when we need our t-shirt that says it is what it is because it is what it is. And we just continue to go forward and we maintain our courage. We maintain our fortitude. We maintain our perseverance. And eventually, when you get that job, you will forget about the 300 applications. You, you'll remember it when you're telling a story about it, but you're not going to get the job and sitting in the lunchroom crying about the 200 jobs you didn't get. 
gonna, it's never about the 200 you didn't get. It's always about the one you did. Because if you don't, if you don't forget those old things, you become a risk. You become an emotional and mental risk and your ability to, to bring value to the team you're with is going to begin to subside. And now you've got another issue on your hands. You don't want to end up back in the job search process again, do you? Remember how painful it was, right? So <laughs> it's all about value. All about value. So thank you again to Michelle, to Eric, for being with us on this episode of The World of UX. Uh, I, I, we, You folks are going to be heard all over the world, just so you know. Uh, matter of fact, that in the, the CXFM Radio Network, uh, we discovered that my listenership is 50.2%, I believe it is, uh, United States, and the rest of it is outside of the country. So uh, you will be heard everywhere. I know the folks in South Africa, which I'm about to do another talk for them, are going to love this. And the market's a little different over there, but still challenging uh, uh, from a balance perspective. I, I like how things are similar all over the world. So when we talk, it becomes relevant to everybody. So I love the, the voices that you two share out there. Keep it coming. And, and let's keep fighting to right this ship and represent UX the proper way. Awesome. So, Thanks again. Any closing words from, from you folks? I'll give you a moment for that. Uh, Michelle, any closing words? Oh, man. There's so many words I could say. I just say, man, this is such a great field. Um, is The greatest thing about this field is it, you can't get into UX because of money. Um, never do it because it's cool. Because UX is the amalgamation of so many different roads coming into one. Yes. Uh, so if you are you know, someone who likes to know... A, billion different things and you're not happy just, you know, going on down one path, UX, I think can give you the ability to, to be that person who can use all of the different hats that you're used to wearing. You get to wear them. Uh, if that appeals to you and it excites you, then, then come to UX. Cause I think that this is such a great field and um, yeah, that's my last word on that. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Eric, final words. Absolutely. Just start finding real problems and solving them with UX. That's all I've ever done. That's how I got my foot in the door. And that's how I keep getting uh, referrals for as much work as I need. So um, find problems and solve them. And if you do that well enough, people will soon not be able to not pay you for that. So those are our closing words today for the World of UX audience. Thank you again, everybody, for joining us again. I can't say this enough. Thank you, Michelle and Eric, for being with me on today. But it is time to sign off, folks. So this is Darren Hood, the host of The World of UX. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.